Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Sullenberg. A look at lake monsters. Leafing through several upstate New York papers, it seems as though lake monsters are all the rage these days, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and every other Saturday. Until recent, reports of such creatures lurking beneath the surface were reserved for backwoods bumpkins and people with a collection of vented hats. Nevertheless, it appears the number of sightings from credible sources has increased to an astounding degree. And with summer right around the corner, a lot of us out there want to know if there's any truth to these prehistoric beasts. And if so, do they taste like chicken or fish? It's high time we got to the bottom of this time-honored mystery, and with countless legends sitting right here in our own backyard, the evidence is staggering. Lake Spicoli, 1964. Sacramento P.I. Lester Whaley, a skeptic, set out early one spring morning to uncover a local myth. Whaley was known for his investigative role in a number of highly publicized California divorces, a man generally referred to in press statements as the chambermaid with an eye for dirty laundry. Marilyn Crabtree, a Spicoli County resident, hired Mr. Whaley to carry out surveillance on her husband. Ms. Crabtree claimed that for the past three years she had been faithfully married to the famed Lake Spicoli monster, but as of late grew suspicious of his midday activities and suspected him of infidelity. Whaley's report led to a shocking discovery. 9.02 a.m. Lake is still, no sign of the monster. 9.47 a.m. A lone boat trolls the western bank. 10.35 a.m. There's a disturbance on the water. Probably a fish. Perhaps a loon. Wouldn't that be grand? A loon this late in the season? 11.07 a.m. A group of schoolboys pass by chucking stones into the lake. A runt with glasses and a goofy haircut brings up the rear. The overachiever of the bunch may have problems at home. Still, no sign of the monster and I'm getting hungry. 11.38 a.m. I reposition myself further up the hill to get a better vantage point and bang my eye on my sandwich. 12.24 p.m. A vehicle heading north on Lakeview Drive stops at a bend in the road where the foundation of an old church sits, one of the monster's suspected points of entry to the lake. Behind the wheel is an unidentified female, a blonde. She waits. 12.37 p.m. The monster emerges from the water and makes his first appearance. He wiggles up the hill and greets the woman with a long embrace. They get in the car and kiss, then make the drive into town. I follow. 12.58 p.m. The couple enters the Tilly Diner on Buckton Ave. The monster now disguised in an overcoat and a hat with fake mustache and a pair of glasses. They sit on the same side of the table and order. The monster has the tuna melt and substitutes french fries for a side of potato salad. 1.43 p.m. The couple catches the matinee show at the Livermore Movie House and clean out its supply of chocolate-covered raisins. 3.57 p.m. The couple enters Mr. K's record shop and peruses the jazz section. They chat with another couple and purchase a copy of Sammy Coppa and the Kansas City Horns. 5.11 p.m. The subjects return to the lake where the woman produces a scuba suit from the trunk of her car. The couple enters the water together, holding hands, and are alone for nearly an hour. 
This activity continued each subsequent day with a different unknown female. One day, the monster escorted a set of twins to an outdoor music festival before taking them back to the lake. And one day, he chaperoned a young co-ed to Bouchard's where they gabbed and gossiped over a pot of fondue. Another time, the monster hopped on a bus of Romanian belly dancers and accompanied them to Reno for the weekend. And close are my receipts. Lake Hawani, 1985. Georgian native Jacob Belcher reports a terrifying experience during a water skiing competition. On my final pass of the day, I catch an edge around buoy number four and go down. My ski washes over me and smashes into my nose. My vision goes fuzzy. I sense something ahead of me, just below the surface of the water. It rises slowly and begins to take shape. I can make out a big black and green mass with points staring back at me. It was the Lake Hawani serpent. I try and scream, but he wraps around me and covers my mouth and shoves his tail into my back and tells me if I make another sound, he'll let me have it. I tried to keep calm, think of my wife and that National Parks program on television I was looking forward to later that evening. He dragged me underwater and took me to a cave where he tied me up and forced me to watch him try on a heap of turtleneck sweaters, asking which do I prefer and do any of them do anything for his length. I managed to free a hand from the ropes and wait to make my escape. I bided my time through several choruses of a jaunty sailing song I was unfamiliar with myself but faked my way through so as to not rouse suspicion. Eventually, the serpent fell asleep. I slipped my other hand from the ropes and made a break for the mouth of the cave. I resurfaced just a few feet from my ski which I used to paddle myself to the end of the course where I received a white ribbon and a third place finish in the competition. The remaining field of competitors failed to complete the course due to a sudden outbreak of illness that was traced back to a batch of bad coleslaw. Willis Lake, 1979. One of the most astonishing pieces of cryptid evidence is that of Benjamin Zetzer in his famous 90-second film of the Willis Lake monster, affectionately nicknamed Willie. One afternoon, old man Zetzer, an amateur angler, was walking along the shore of Minnesota's Willis Lake, trying out his new camera. A birthday present he mistook for a cutting-edge fish finder, when all of a sudden he noticed an animal with a long neck and deep gills stretching out of the water. He pointed the camera at the giant to document its girth, and inadvertently captured a minute and a half of crystal-clear footage that would have doubters and naysayers scratching their heads for years to come. On August 16, 1998, during the now legendary Sadler Hall auction, the Weber and Dobbs auction house sold the original 16mm negative of the renowned Zetzer film at a record-setting price tag. A hatful of the country's most notable buyers were on hand for the much-anticipated vendue. There was Jessica Gruber of the Fort Dixon Grubers, Lionel Mayforth, acquisitioner of rare antiquities and weird locally made candy bars found in the checkout line of grocery stores, and Perry Quilty, architect of the Quilty Artificial Limb Company and Triple Amputee. As the film canister made its way onto stage, a stirred sea of murmurs spread through the hall and a press room of flashbulbs ignited. The auctioneer, Francois Lubert, began the sale at 12 past noon. Quilty's corked hook joust through the air with an opening bid of $50,000. May 4th came out of the gate strong, challenging his rival with a $10,000 increase, while Gruber showed her dominance by raising the bid to $75,000. May 4th followed with a $1,000 jump. Quilty let fire with $78,000. Gruber bluffed her way to $80,000 before bowing out and letting the boys duke it out alone. 
A tennis match of testosterone-fueled bidding raged on well into snack time, and before either man could catch his or his breath, the current bid had climbed to a disorienting $535,325, and continued to grow in increments of $10 as the men searched their pockets. At one point, Quilty removed his shoe and offered his prosthetic foot featuring gold toenails to Mr. LeBaire, asking for an $1,100 raise. At which point, an in-house appraiser looked over the foot and determined it was only worth six. Quilty took the highest bid by a foot and May 4th had reached his limit. As the auctioneer raised his hammer calling for final bids, Jessica Gruber swooped in with a $20,000 raise and sniped the sale from Quilty for an earth-shattering $645,935. Lake McKenzie, 1992. Dan Olson and his group of tumbleweed scouts were hiking along the Spokane Nature Trail in the Idaho Panhandle when they came across the carcass of a water-dwelling behemoth. After several unrestrained minutes of fumbling through the nature manual, Olson's bewilderment had reached its pinnacle. He contacted his brother-in-law at the Raymore Natural History Museum and told him he was ready to cash in that favor from the bachelor party. A team was dispatched with fervent haste. The body was recovered and taken back to the museum for further analysis. Leading authority in cryptozoology, Dr. Lars Schofassen, was flown in from Denver on economy and put up in the Marion Junction Motor Inn to offer his learned theory on the origins of what was now being called Ollie, the Lake Mackenzie Lake Monster. Dr. Schofassen's study yielded a number of curious findings. The creature measures out to a length of 14 and a half meters, so it's safe to assume he was probably a center and not, say, a point guard. His mandibular alone is a meter long and contains 27 teeth that appear to have been treated for years with an off-brand paste. His weight tips the scale at a little over 80,000 kilograms, and judging from the swelling to his insular cortex, this realization would have implanted in the creature a certain level of self-consciousness. The contents of his stomach provide fascinating insight into the creature's diet, which appears adequate but lacking in fiber and calcium. The creature's last meal, a porterhouse and baked potato with a glass of Sutterheim in 2010, also demonstrates his refined palate and eye for pairing. Digging deeper, I found a toothpick and mini flag that suggests the steak came from a restaurant called Albert's on the River. River Island Sound, 1904. The only documented capture of a living, breathing lake monster occurred off the coast of Newport's West Sag Village. Captain Leanne Radley, a shipmaster by day and a poor excuse for a cuddler by night, pulled the monster from the cold depths of the Atlantic Inlet with the aid of a mismatched band of seafaring Rhode Islanders after the beast had become entangled in the boat's fishing nets. Radley sold the monster to the Miller and Teague Traveling Circus for $50 and a date with Lana the Glass Eater, a request he regretted sooner than later. A fair addition to the Miller and Teague family, the creature was given a spot in the circus's famous 10-in-1 sideshow attraction. The creature's new home, a 5,000-gallon glass water tank, nestled nicely between two of the sideshow's greatest acts. On the creature's left, the great Fontana, a Romanian mystic with the secret to immortality and good credit. And on its right, the world-renowned Roxy Twins, a pair of 22-year-old Siamese cooch dancers with a talent for sucking snake bites. The creature had replaced a beloved oddity known as Veggie Babies, little dolls made of potatoes and carrots with alfalfa sprout hair that were placed into jars of formaldehyde, 
The story of their capture was told by a carny dressed as a pitchfork-toting farmer. The creature traveled with the company from county to county, and fortunately for Miller and Teague had a knack for telling jokes, which it did twice a night, seven days a week, with the help of a translator by the name of Waylon Fife, a deranged peanut vendor with an unhealthy obsession for leather gloves. Fife duped everyone into believing he could actually understand the creature, and with that, the famous double-act team Fife and the Creature was born. Their routines were tight and top-notch and killed almost every night. In this hilarious and unforgettable bit, Fife and the Creature play two men at a bar, with Fife interpreting the Creature's lines for the audience. Say, Creature, Creature says. Yes, Fife. Say, Creature, did you hear about that amusing accident on the boardwalk Ferris wheel? Creature says. No, I didn't hear about the amusing accident on the boardwalk Ferris wheel. You mean to tell me you didn't hear about the amusing accident on the boardwalk Ferris wheel? Creature says. Tell me, Fife, what was the amusing accident on the boardwalk Ferris wheel? Well, Creature, it seems this woman told this man to hold her seat, and when he did, she slapped him. Some nights, Fife would swap seat for Poodle. production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.